Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of the You Should Run podcast. I'm your host, Tony Heil, council member in Bridgeport, Pennsylvania. And as always, um, I'm focusing on talking to people across the country who have run for office or are running for office in the process of getting involved in the legislative process and hopefully encouraging you to run. This country is very diverse from cities to rural areas, from Maine to Hawaii, Alaska to South Florida. And we've talked to someone from every state, including D.C. And one of, uh, actually, one of my favorite places to talk to was Idaho last year when I was trying to finish getting through all 50 states. And so I'm really excited today to talk with uh, Representative Alana Rubel from Idaho. And we're going to talk about her experiences in a pretty challenging political environment, uh, her experiences um, and what it's like there. And hopefully you'll be encouraged to run for office or get involved yourself, even if the challenges may seem very difficult. So with that in mind, uh, Representative Rebel, thank you so much for talking today. My pleasure. So I've been looking you up, and Idaho is a fascinating place with its own um, unique political environment, I would say, right? It's unique, all right. Well, it is very, very, I think we might be the most Republican legislature. Maybe we're tied with Wyoming. Uh, but yes, our, our legislature is 82% Republican, and I am the House Democratic leader, so every day is a new challenge. And to me, what's interesting is that um, it's not, Idaho is not just Republican. Um, there are some places in this country that were long Republican, but Idaho is extreme, like, conservative libertarian Republican, right? Like, it's not, there's not a lot of moderation there amongst the party. It is incredibly extreme, um, although I don't know if I would necessarily always call it libertarian. I mean, there, there does seem to be kind of a real fixation on social issues, and, you know, we, we were the last thing. We've only just literally, I think within the past 24 hours, legalized hemp. Uh, so industrial hemp, we were the you know, it had been legalized federally and in 49 other states, and for two years we couldn't even get them to legalize industrial hemp. Um, we are in the middle right now of a fierce, fierce debate. They have failed every budget to fund everything from kindergarten through universities um, because they are so upset that social justice concepts and and and, and uh, you know Black Lives Matter movement and all of this. <laughs> um, they, they are so concerned that social justice content is being included in our curricula that they are really threatening to defund the entire public education system um, until things like you know LGBT clubs are eliminated and whatnot. I mean, it's, uh, it's something. And I was reading about that, looking at some clips from Idaho, um, and it, it makes me interested in your background, uh, because um, you have a very accomplished background yourself, right? You didn't just wake up one morning and decide, I want to get involved in politics, right? You, you have a, a, a pretty uh, impressive professional background. Well, thank you. I, yeah, I mean, I'm an attorney. Um, and uh, before doing this, I was a partner at a large Silicon Valley law firm uh, that had a small Boise, Idaho office. Um, but I've been always very, very interested in politics. It was always the thing I would do if I was on long, boring conference calls and had time to surf the internet. I would just go obsessively follow every political development. And I would certainly donate to political causes. I had you know, limited time to volunteer. Um, but uh, was was always obsessively interested in politics. But I did have a long background in law, so you know, been practicing law for a good twenty plus years um, before heading into this. So, yeah, it's 
that um you said you've always paid attention was there any i don't know if it was a defining moment but was there anything that made you um really start to care about politics was it something in your family that really like a culture in your family like in mine uh, well yeah definitely like you know i have a grandmother who was always maniacally politically active mm-hmm. uh she was very involved with her actually from pennsylvania oh what, what <laughs> part was, uh, yeah she say that i think of how idaho looks because it almost looks like there's a ladder or stairway to progress even that's even if that's not exactly the way that the policy comes about right well i mean i'm trying very hard Mm -hmm. to you know maintain whatever ladders we have and build new ones in idaho it's uniquely challenging here i mean they are very very resistant to those programs uh you know it's an incredible uphill battle getting you know even baseline funding into public schools and universities were one of only four states that has no pre-k um it took a, an epic struggle to basically force the state finally to do medicaid expansion and make health care available to low-income populations in fact they refused for seven years um to even allow a vote on it at the legislative level um here the only way it, it got through at all was through the ballot initiative process um the people collected enough signatures and got it on the ballot directly because our legislature was basically never going to allow a vote on it yeah and you know here in pennsylvania had we not elected a democratic governor even though we're you know a more um blue state than idaho if we hadn't elected that governor we probably would have delayed getting medicaid expansion much longer oh i have no doubt 
Well, they thought if they're anything like Idaho, they never would have allowed it. So, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but now actually, it's here. It's interesting here because the only mechanism really for getting that kind of thing passed is our ballot initiative mm-hmm. process. Because our legislature will just flatly refuse to even allow a hearing or a vote. And so now they're waging war on the ballot initiative process right. uh, because they're so angry that there was this end run where the people were able to get Medicaid expansion despite the legislature's you know nonstop efforts to stop it that now they've basically been coming in with one after another um, legislative attempt to ostensibly end the ballot initiative process so that there's no direct democracy alternative. Um, and actually, that's that's a big issue out here now. As our governor just signed a bill that would effectively make ballot initiatives impossible. Yeah, and that's one of the things I saw when I reached out to you. It's um, And I want to circle back to how you got into politics. But first, when I'm looking at all of the issues that you, in particular, have to address as a leader in your party, um, as a legislator, um, you're almost like a, a goalie in hockey or soccer, um, just having to defend things off. It, it, I, how are you doing, like, personally? Like, does it get, it, you have to, like, sit back, and it's a challenge, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's awful. It's, it's, you're exactly right. I mean, I have all these things affirmatively that I would like to be mm-hmm. working on. Um, but instead, almost every minute of every day is taken up in just nonstop trying to block things that are so unfathomably terrible that it, but it is absorbing. It's a 24-7 job just trying to block bad things. Um, and it is exhausting, but I have wonderful caucus mates, and we have a great support structure just within our small Democratic caucus. And I bought myself a massage chair from Costco this year, uh, which has been really helpful. <laughs> I come home now and sit in my massage chair and, you know, try to block some of it out for at least a little bit every night. Well, I think you deserve it. But um, yeah, <laughs> having been in politics for a long time myself, um, I've met a lot of lawyers who get involved in politics um, with their firm, with either fundraising or organizing. But they're like, ah running for office is for someone else. I'll be on the sidelines. What convinced you, especially knowing, you know, the the high bar to uh, passing affirmative legislation, possibly? Um, you obviously want to get things done. So what inspired you to say, no, I'm going to actually run, not just stand on the sidelines? You know, it was kind of a funny, it was, wave of gosh, it was back in the end of 2013, mm-hmm. and I had just finished reading Sheryl Sandberg's Lean In. Um, which was really kind of life-changing for me. It was that it really addressed kind of some of the self-defeating behaviors that women in particular engage in and how women tend to undervalue their competitiveness for certain jobs and just think, you know, oh, I'm sure there's someone better for that. Oh, I'm sure I'm not qualified enough for that, et cetera. And they just convince themselves out of going for exciting opportunities and going for promotions at work and you name it. Um, Well, so I just finished reading that. And then the legislator from my district moved to Seattle halfway through his term. So there was an opening in our legislature for my district. Uh, and they said, you know, an email went out to all the Democrats in the district saying there's an opening. It had been a Democrat who left, so they mm-hmm. had to appoint a Democrat to fill that spot. And this email went out saying, you know, any Democrat can apply. You just have to write three sentences about why you'd want to be in the legislature. Well, I don't know. You know, running for office would have been so terrifying to me at that point. I'd never run for anything in my life, never, you know, anything from class secretary or anything ever. (laughs) And it seemed like a very terrifying idea. But this idea of being appointed, I'm like, well, sure, I could write three sentences about why, you know, on a website, that'd be easy. And 
even with that, I was kind of, you know, ah, but nobody knows who I am. I'm not famous. I'm not anything. Um, so I kind of on myself almost talked out of it. But luckily, I had just finished reading Lean In. And I was thinking, you know what? That's what women always do. They always convince mm-hmm. themselves that they're someone more qualified and that they shouldn't go for it. And it would be silly to reach for the brass ring. And so, you know, for the heck of it, for Sheryl Sandberg, five minutes before the application deadline on December 26th, when they were closing the application database, I was like, you know, what the heck, I'll throw my name in. Um, so I, I did, and uh, it felt like a nutty thing to do. I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. I didn't <laughs> didn't tell friends, my mom, my kids, anything. Um, and then, um, amazingly, I got selected. Uh, so then it was it was a really interesting adventure where I had to break, and it all went down so fast. I mean, the whole thing happened in the span of a week. Um, and then there I was, you know, telling telling my, breaking the news to my family that I was going to be sworn into the legislature the next morning. Uh, so I had an unusual path to it, but then I had to figure out how to run. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I got in easy the first time I got appointed, uh, but then really quick, you know, I was on the ballot that November. So I had to very quickly figure out how to be a candidate. Um, but once I really started getting in up to my eyeballs on what was happening at our state legislature, I, w- I realized I better win this thing. We cannot afford to have one less voice at that Capitol speaking up for education and health care and women's rights and LGBT rights and you name it. Um, so I pretty much hurled myself into it 24-7 um, because it just felt so imperative um, to not drop the ball and, and lose that, that race. Um, there were just too many people that needed someone there speaking up for, for these things. You know, the, the way you say about having that voice, it really hits home to me that someone else could probably look at the the long odds, the political odds in, in a state like Idaho and say, you know, just, just whatever Democrat, it doesn't matter. But it does matter, right? Like, you could get a Democrat in that office who is just going to go along to get along and not speak out, and it would kind of be a waste of that seat as opposed to someone, you know, not just like yourself, but other caucus mates of yours who are going to, maybe they won't win every battle, but they're going to fight every battle. That's exactly right. It really matters a lot. And I get, you know, I'm constantly getting, you know, well, we're not passing as many many bills as we'd like. I have gotten some bills passed, Mm -hmm. um, and we've managed to block some bills. And it makes a huge difference who's in there. Um, It really does. I mean, the extent to which you can mobilize people, you know, there have been times when, you know, I've done things, I don't want to flatter myself here, but I've done things that I don't think a lot of people would have thought to do, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a bill, you know, another bill attacking ballot initiatives a few years ago, and I thought, you know, I'm going to reach out to all of the living ex, you know, attorneys general of Idaho, because I bet they would be horrified by this because it's so unconstitutional. And I went around in a frenzy and tracked them all down and got them to send in a joint letter opposing um, this piece of legislation and got it released to the press and blasted it out everywhere um, and, you know, re- reached out through the media, um, got it placed everywhere. Pretty soon all this, all the papers in the state were writing op-eds saying that this was a totally unconstitutional piece of legislation. Um, you know, I did some fairly creative things to mobilize this, you know, wide-based, you know, media initiative and, and getting some powerful voices to speak up, and we ultimately got the bill vetoed. Um, and I don't know if that would have happened if, you know, if, if someone hadn't been there to mobilize all of that. Uh, you know, I am constantly seeking out, for example, attorney general opinions on bills that I know are, you know, 
have, have real constitutional questionable uh, footing. Um, and I get those those attorney general opinions. Those attorney general opinions wouldn't come out if I weren't there mm-hmm. to get them and then send them to the media and get them out there so that the people know that, you know, unconstitutional infringements on their rights are being plotted by their legislature. Um, but then when it comes to bringing bills, and this really has frustrated me when I've watched the Democratic primary process, basically at every level throughout the country. Um, but people think that anyone with the same positions are interchangeable, mm-hmm. and they're not. There's a huge difference um, between you know who will do the work to get bills passed, um, because you know you can. I'm going to do another example. So the first bill I ever brought was this um, anti-bullying bill. Um, to set up a structure to, you know, implement best anti-bullying practices, have uh, training for all school personnel and, and reporting structures and all this to address bullying in schools. Well, this was a concept that had been supported for years and years. Um, there had been kind of a draft bill floating around for five years that had never gotten a hearing in committee and was basically going nowhere. Um, and I worked my tail off for this thing. I'm sure I spent well over a thousand hours on it. Um, but I pulled together, you know, child psychiatrists, and I, I did some brainstorming, like, who are the groups that would really care about this? And I thought, okay, you know, disability groups, you know, mothers of autistic kids, um, LGBT groups, Native American groups, I just thought of every group out there that could, you know, disproportionately suffer from school bullying, and reached out through their leadership, and mobilized them, and got them to send in emails to the legislature, and bombard them, and, and be prepared to come in and testify, and, you know, the bill, the bill actually passed. So it had been stalled and going nowhere for five years, but through this, you know, massive effort of mobilizing people and, you know, and I, I met with every single legislator on the committee. I brought, you know, the, the expert on bullying with me to private meetings with their office and kind of cornered them and was like, okay, you know, if you have any concerns about this, I brought the expert to your office. So ask them. And then at that point, you know, they really couldn't vote against it. You know? mm-hmm. um, but it was a tremendous amount of work getting that thing through. So you could ask 20 Democratic legislators, you know, if they support anti-bullying legislation, and they might all say yes. But that doesn't mean they're all interchangeable. You know, which is the one that's going to spend a thousand hours doing all of the work to make it pass? Um, that's a very different question. And that's not a question that voters ever think to ask. So mm-hmm. they just look at, you know, a couple people running in a primary. They have the same positions on issues, and they think, ah, eh, it doesn't matter. Pick one. Um, and they don't look at that efficacy piece of, you know, who is going to actually things real, <laughs> things actually happen. Um, and I wish that that was something that voters dug into more uh, because you know that, that can be a huge differentiator between candidates. Um, but that is something that I like to think at least that I bring to the table that maybe not every cookie cutter Democrat would that would slot into my spot. Yeah, personally, when I was watching the presidential debates in 2019, 2020, I was like, look, they're, they're not all the same, but I know listening to both actually Elizabeth Warren and uh, Joe Biden, they both know something about the details of policymaking and and others too, but, you know, so-and-so is great, but I would rather someone who knows like, oh, this little detail about how we got another billion dollars here or another, um, we funded this program, like the stimulus bill, I I am ecstatic about because I know in my own neighborhood and probably in yours too, this is going to actually help people not just sound like it helps people that's exactly right and actually it's funny you mentioned so elizabeth warren was my one of my professors in law school oh my god i like um, you more and more alana you're from <laughs> pennsylvania all right keep going 
<laughs> no, but it was, but that was the thing that I really loved about her was, you know, and a lot of people thought, you know, oh, Elizabeth, Bernie, no difference. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, I always thought big difference, actually. <laughs> and there's really, very, there are very few people like Elizabeth Warren in that regard. Like, she will dig through, you know, the, mm-hmm. you know, I, I had her for several classes. She will wonk out. I mean, she will find that little thing in eight-point font on page 300 of the bill that is, you know, the real essence of, you know, why poor people can never recover and dig out from bankruptcy or whatever. I mean, she, you know, had an attention to detail and was willing to do the work in a way that almost nobody is. Um, she was not just a grandstander. Uh, she was she was a workhorse, not a, not a show horse, and mm-hmm. I really appreciated that about her. Um but that's the kind of thing that I'm not sure all voters fully get what a differentiator that is. So um, we, I know from my perspective, being further away, I look at some of the challenges in a state like Idaho or Oklahoma or Missouri. And talk, I've talked with legislators from other places. Um, but you have passed or been involved in some very important um, bills. If for whatever reason you decided I have to move to Hawaii tomorrow and what would you consider your favorite, the things that you're proudest of as an accomplishment that maybe if someone else is thinking about running, they're like, wow, I'm, maybe if I put in the detail, I can do that too. Oh, yeah. I mean, I've got some things here that I'm really, really proud of. Um, now, of course, if I were in a state like Hawaii, I'd, I've always wondered that, whether I would actually feel compelled to do this gig if I were in a state where, you know, that was already blue. Uh, you know, here it's just, it's such a flaming train wreck half the time that you I should if like, you're in you know, hawaii and I, i'm sorry to interrupt <laughs> because when i talk to someone from there there's a lot of complacency in a place like hawaii and i don't think that there are enough people like you in some of those places where there might be a lot of political complacency um and more people like you who are not complacent might make a big difference well that is very kind of you to say uh, but yeah some of my you know i i've gotten some remarkable things through um that nobody you know i, I would have thought could be done in Idaho. Um, one thing that I got through was was uh, dental care coverage for uh, Medicaid, which was really mm-hmm. exciting. Um, you know, I mean, this was actually at the time when they were refusing to even allow a hearing on expanding Medicaid, and Medicaid was basically a dirty word. Um, and I somehow amazingly managed to get them to add dental benefits back into Medicaid, um, which was amazing. <laughs> that was my, my, maybe my proudest moment. I mean, I've gotten some other cool things done. I got, you know, hearing aids covered for, for poor kids. This year I worked on extending the foster care age to 21. Um, but, you know, you've got to know your audience mm-hmm. and you've got to know what angle is going to appeal to them. And, um, you know, and I don't know if I would be as, you know, I've been so used to for eight years trying to figure out how to pitch something to conservative Republicans. It would be an interesting exercise in figuring out how to, you know, completely reframe arguments to try to appeal to a blue electorate. But, you know, for example, for the dental piece, uh, you know, that came to my attention. I knocked doors in a lot of very low-income areas mm-hmm. here. And the thing I kept, and I always ask, you know, what's the biggest thing on your mind? What's your biggest issue? And the thing I kept hearing in these, you know, trailer parks and very low-income areas was um, that the state had taken away dental care coverage from Medicaid a number of years earlier, back in the 2008 recession, and never restored it. Um, and these folks were saying, you know, I can't chew my food. I'm in pain all the time. I'm living on Jello and applesauce mm. uh, because my teeth are rotting and I can't afford to go to a dentist. Um, and so that really got to me. <laughs> like, oh my gosh, that's horrifying. Um, but I knew that was never going to appeal to my colleagues. They would say, well, you know, 
know, they should have gotten a job. They should have, you know, shouldn't be lazy and on welfare. It's their fault. Um, so I had to go with the economic angle, and I had to dig up all the data showing the, you know, that it was actually much more expensive to not give them dental care, mm-hmm. and find these all these instances of people who had had, you know, what should have been a simple cavity not being filled, that it progressed to a life-threatening infection where they had to be, you know, airlifted, have total facial reconstruction surgery. You know, one guy's jaw actually broke because the infection had progressed so far. And I was actually able to show that it would save the state $3 million mm-hmm. a year in downstream costs to give them dental care. Um, so that's kind of the argument I've always had to think about making is creative angles that would be a very different story probably if I were in a blue state. I would just be able to say, hey, these people are in pain. Let's help them. <laughs> Yeah, it, well, it's something where I feel like even as a small town person myself, it's nice to be able to sit back occasionally and be like, even if no one really understands that I did this, like, here's something I can put as an accomplishment that I know is really benefiting people's lives and people's lives are better because of this. Yeah, yes, exactly. And when you, it, it feels so good. It's really worth taking a lot of meetings to have those occasional moments where you can sit back and think, this is really great. You know, 100,000 people can go to a dentist because of some work I did. It's mm-hmm. really gratifying. Now, one thing I wrote down on my notes as we were talking, because you mentioned uh, Cheryl Sandberg, it made me think of the impact of Facebook on a place like Idaho. Um, and it's true everywhere. It's true in Pennsylvania. But we have a lot of local news in Pennsylvania, too. Local stations, um, local newspapers. But they're, they're dying. Um, do you see in Idaho, a lack of local attention from people because they're just focused on the the hyper online stuff that's missing the details of actually helping people. Oh my gosh, absolutely. That is so true. It is so hard to get people to focus on local issues, um, even when they're just you know, appallingly standard here on and bad. Mm-hmm. Um, they still even, well, first of all, just getting anybody to engage in politics at any level can be a real challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I guess that was one good thing about the Trump years is it, you know, it definitely got people watching the political news a little more. Right. And it did tend to activate people and people were, were coming out a lot more and it did spill over into engagement in local issues. Um, but that has been the drum I've been constantly trying to beat since the day I got in here is, you know, people, you have got to watch what's happening at the local level. It's it's really where the rubber meets the road. It's where, you know, all things are happening that are impacting people's lives at so much deeper and more significant level even than the national stuff. And nobody, so few people can even name their local legislator or, you know, have no clue what's going on in the local legislature. And I think those news outlets are essential, and I worry to death about them disappearing because um, they are our last hope. I mean, the media, I feel like, is our last lifeline to turn things around in a state like this. You know, I always have to hope that maybe if people can just learn how bad things are, that at some point they will be spurred to action. But once those local news outlets are gone, there's there's really no hope for turning things around. Yeah, and I was seeing about some of the legislation you worked on that would be great in any state. Um, so stuff like on child care and health care in general and education, um, that it gets stopped because of a rating from a far-right group um do you think do you think that a lot of that that opposition do you think it's actually sincere from political opponents or do you think it is out of fear of 
their base or out of those groups and, and instead of like actual policy oriented opposition. So I am well, I'm pretty cynical on this one. I think a lot of it is very bogus and very knowingly bogus. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there it's clickbait to to a large extent. You know, they want to gin up hysteria because it'll get more eyeballs on their site, it'll get more donations rolling in, and they will come pretty darn close to completely fabricating things that I I have to believe they're smart enough to know are gibberish, um, just because they know it'll get people revved up, it'll get people logging on and following their stuff. And I mean, today, when I get off the phone with you, um, this, is, this is going to be my day. <laughs> so we have, um, as I mentioned, we're one of only four states that have no early childhood education grant. We miraculously got this $6 million federal grant um, doesn't cost the state a dime, just federal money coming in to support pre-Ks around the state, you know, Head Start programs for early childhood, you know, literacy and numeracy, essential, just a lifeline to families and, you know, mm-hmm. around the state that we desperately need. Um, and this far-right group has people ginned up to actually try to get us to turn down $6 million in help for child care, um, claiming that it's going to go toward liberal indoctrination of our children. Um, and there is a very strong chance that we just end up turning down $6 million in desperately needed help um, because they have managed to gin people up into a frenzy of, you know, fear of liberal indoctrination. I mean, this is literally money to teach kids their ABCs. Um, and they're like, they're going to learn social justice. They're all going to turn them into Black Lives Matter activists. They're going to blah, blah, blah. I mean, it is a bizarre level of hysteria that they've managed to whip up around this. But my inbox is filled right now with emails from people telling us to turn the money down um, because they think it will lead to liberal indoctrination. And I've got to believe this group knows this is nonsense. Uh, you know, it's, they've, it's, the facts are out there. They know the facts. They've been presented with the facts. But I think it's more fun for them and more profitable for them to gin up this nonsense conspiracy theory. Yeah, and, it- no, it's so sad to me as a parent. I, I have a five-year-old and a seven-year-old, and we just had our our, uh, our parent-teacher conference for my seven-year-old's first grade class, and he's supposed to be able to read 200 words by the end of the year, sight words, and he's at almost 300. Um, and I know a lot of that's because we were able to afford quality preschool and pre-K at a place nearby, and he's got good schooling and good parents. He, he has a lot of advantages that other kids don't. Why would you not want that for every kid? It is baffling. It is baffling, and it makes such an incredible difference, and the data is through the roof in mm-hmm. terms of, at every level from, you know, hitting those, that you know, the third grade literacy metrics, which is a huge predictor of success in mm-hmm. life, but you can track through through incarceration levels, through lifelong income, um, what an incredible benefit it is to have access to pre-K, and we are going to be probably denying that access to a better life for, you know, low-income kids at every corner of the state, you know, because of this, what I think is in really questionable, I would say, outright bad faith, um, you know, conspiracy theory that's been ginned up. Um, and I hope that doesn't happen, but there's a very good chance that by the end of today, if I were to talk to you later this afternoon, that we would have just, you know, driven a stake through the heart of this, of this that took years for us to get this grant and it is probably going to have to be turned down in the end because my colleagues will not vote to accept the money uh well that's unfortunate but i appreciate that you are not going quietly into that good night for something so important um but we sure are not 
Um, but you wouldn't be there if you didn't get involved. You, uh, it's so important to get involved in the process, either run for office or help people do it. Um, if people are listening to a podcast called You Should Run, what would be your encouragement for people to get involved? Well, first of all, you are needed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if, if these are issues you care about at all in terms of you know, improving the quality of life for your community, um, I, I, I can pretty much guarantee that you are needed in your, well, certainly in your state legislature and probably at many levels of government. Um, but for people like I would have been, who would be absolutely terrified of the idea of running for office, and as I said, I, I'm a bit of a hypocrite because I don't know that I ever would have had the courage to run in the first instance. You know, I, I, I was able to get in initially on, a, on an appointment. Um, and if I had had to start out running, um, I hope I would have had the courage, but I, you know, I, I kind of cheated. Um, but one thing that I really learned, and it was, you know, it, it absolutely terrified me, the run, thought of running for office and knocking on strangers' doors and asking people to donate money to my campaign, uh, you know, it would have just, you know, made me freeze in my tracks. But having done it now, I want to tell people, um, it's an amazing experience. You know, I was in a seat, the seat I'm in had gone previously by seven votes. So the night before my first election, and this was my first election for anything ever, right? I'd never run for a thing in my life. Um, the night before, I really didn't know how it was going to turn out. And I thought, you know, okay, Alana, you know, if this goes badly, you know, I had dropped everything I was doing. I'd taken off work. I'd been knocking doors, you know, till 10 p.m. I hadn't been home for dinner in seven months, basically, from knocking doors. I'd hit up everybody I'd ever known for donations. And I thought, okay, Alana, if you lose this thing, are you going to be able to handle it? Um, Because there's a very good chance this doesn't go your way tomorrow night, right? (laughs) Um, And I and I thought to myself, you know what? If if worse comes to worse, and I go down in flames, this will still have been the best thing I ever did. Mm -hmm. Um, Because just the relationships I formed and the conversations I had. I mean, everybody ought to go knock doors in a trailer park and talk to strangers. You learn amazing things. You learn so much about your country and your community and humanity and. you know, and, and so many people stepped up out of the woodwork, and it, it was a really gratifying experience. You know, people I'd never met just called me and offered to host house parties for me and said, how can I help you? And, you know, it was, um, it was a moving and incredible experience. And I thought, you know, as I said, even if I lose, this will have been the coolest thing I ever did, just the experience of running. So I really want folks listening to that to know that, that, you know, even if you don't win, I predict you will be very glad that you ran. And if you win, I mean, that's even better. Then you'll get to go and actually implement your vision and, and go out and fight for the things you care about. Um, but the mere act of running it is something that a person should experience in their life. It's pretty amazing. Well, I imagine that people would be very inspired by your story and also that they should not ignore what's happening in your state, the issues you're fighting for. So with that in mind, if people are interested in following you and learning more about, you know, what you're fighting for. Um, what's the best ways that people could uh, follow you? Um, let's see. Well, I have uh, Facebook. I'm on Facebook and Twitter. Um, so that would be, you know, either of those would be great. Um, and if anybody's, you know, very seriously thinking about running for office, you know, my, my contact info is all on my website. And mm-hmm. I would be happy to have a personal conversation with someone. Um, but we we really need good people stepping up more. And, you know, sometimes the very best people aren't the ones who think to run. Um, you know, sometimes the people who really are the smartest and hardworking and most compassionate people aren't necessarily the ones who want to see their name in lights and aren't the ones who necessarily gravitate to running for office. 
um, but we need them to. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, I, I, I hope that the people who genuinely care about the issues and bettering their society are giving hard thought to stepping up and doing this. Well, I appreciate that you stepped up and ran, and I do encourage everyone to follow uh, Ilana online um, on Twitter and Facebook. I'll put the tags on on the, on the posts yeah. here so people can follow. And uh, I really wish you the best of luck for, be for better and better policy and better and better people getting involved in Idaho. Thank you so much, uh, Representative Rebell. It was absolutely my pleasure. Thank you so much for this program and for everything you're doing to encourage civic engagement and people stepping up. Great. You do. You uh, best of luck. And I hope that one day I can be out in the beautiful state of Idaho. It's one of the most beautiful places in the country. Oh, I would love that. Lunch is on me when you get here. Great. Thank you so much. <laughs> bye bye. Bonnie's here. Back to school. Ring the bell. Brand new shoes. Walking blues. Climb the fence. Books and pens. I can tell that we are gonna be friends I can tell that